Churchill would burn half a mil on like 17 cases of brandy a night. That was culturally acceptable and cool, but dry cleaning your pajamas, man? Come on. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. BYO Lulov. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Leah Leibowitz. Moadim resimcha chag sukot how many etrogs do you have stuffed in your cheeks right now, Liel? It's, it looks like you're bursting with estrogim. I cannot get enough of the, our body. I wish there were 400, meaning like four is not enough for me. I would shake like seven other fruit stuff and <laughs> flora and fauna and anything you got. Uh, happy Sukkot to everyone. Happy almost Shmini Atzeret, everyone's favorite holiday, except ours because Tom Gedalia is our favorite holiday. And- that, of course, just passed. Uh, to illuminate this most mysterious of Jewish holidays, Shemini Atzeret, I spoke with Professor Roberta Qual, who is a law professor, but also an expert on how to make Jewish obscurantism relevant to your life. She's amazing, and, and that conversation's a lot of fun. Uh, she's going to talk about the traditional smashing of the willows and other little-known Jewish practices that might give us extra meaning at this holiday season. And then a couple equally superb conversations. The first is with author, director, actor, marathoner, renaissance man, and most famously, radio host Peter Sagal, host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And the second is with author and senior editor at The Dispatch, David French, an anti-Trump Republican. Actually, I don't know if he's a registered Republican. I don't know. He's a conservative. I don't know what his registration is. I'm not in the booth with him. And he's talking about his new book, Divided We Fall, which is about how we can hold this here country together. But first... A little Sukkot, or, or as we used to say back in the olden times, Sukkot, as, as those of us in America raised by Jewish grandparents say, Sukkot, happy Abyssal Sukkot. Yeah. So I got this email from the New York City Department of Transportation saying that like street cleaning rules were suspended for Sukkot, S-U-C-C-O-T-H. And I was like, that is a spelling I have never seen, and I am very impressed by it. Okay, I have some thoughts on that spelling. So it's an old-timey spelling, just picking one item from my my deep trove of Jewish Americana. Temple Sinai in Lake Charles, Louisiana, where my grandmother was confirmed in 1925 or 30, where, where Tony Kushner, the playwright, came up. When I was there, they had a little sign out front with the little white letters that they put on a black sign in front of churches and stuff. They all, You also do that on Instagrams on, like, your kid's first day of preschool. <laughs> Do they really? Yeah, they have little signs. I got one. I've, I, I write funny things. And it said out front on that little church sign, which is a church sign, even in front of a synagogue, it's a church sign. It said Shabbat Shalom, S-H-A-B-B-A-T-H. And I think that, you know, the Ashkenazi S, which gives a Shabbos or Sukkot, and then there's the, the Hebraic and Sephardi T, Shabbat, Sukkot. They used to style the, the Ashkenazi S as something in the middle, as, as a lisped Sukkot. Shabbat. See, that's really interesting. That's not at all being a complete stranger here, a stranger in a strange land, if you will. That's totally not how I read it. I read it as in, if your main biblical literacy came not from reading the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, but reading the King James Bible, because you're steeped in this kind of like Bible as something that predominantly belongs to Christians, to not then us. it's Sukkoth, as they sayeth and goeth to <laughs> Sukkoth in the synagogueth. <laughs> You thought it was an Elizabethan affectation. I totally did. Sukkoth. <laughs> Sukkoth. But I, more than spelling, these are the holidays that confuse like most Americans and also most Jews. This is the part of like if you are a Jewish person, you have to take a ton of time off. Not this year because in a very 2020 twist, all of these holidays are falling on the weekend. So none of us get any days off. But um, 
<laughs> you know, this idea of like there's Sukkot, then there's Shemini Atzeret, then there's Simchat Torah. Like these are the like everyone kind of knows Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Even if you don't know what they are, you have friends who are Jews, you know those are the two big guys. Right. And then there's just like this string of like other harvest festivals, oh. you know, there's those funny, like those funny memes going around that are like explaining Jewish holidays to non-Jews. And they say like, this is the one where we sit in a hut. <laughs> and that's what we do on Sukkot. It's a banya. It's basically going to the baths and getting beaten with reeds by old it Russian men. It so doesn't kind of even come close. First of all, I saw an amazing photo just now on Facebook. Someone posted a big sukkah that had Jabba from Star Wars on it. Hence, Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> the hut. Right. Uh, but the, the thing that I so like, if if like me, you're an obsessive compulsive who really wants to be a completist about everything. Sukkot is such an amazing holiday because okay, you do this thing for the first two days, but then what's the thing? Tell people what the thing is. Well, the thing with first of all the whole the whole thing with shaking the lulav, right? The whoa, 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 whole wait, order wait. in Leo, which you back up. First, you build a hut, which is supposed to be closed on three sides, open on one, which has organic matter on top that's dense enough to keep most light out, but let the rain in. But you have to be able to see the stars, but it's pretty dense, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. And and then there's an entire Talmudic discussion about what constitutes a wall. Could it be an elephant? Yes. If the elephant is dead and doesn't move. Oh, this, that this part of whole... Mishnah is amazing. Can you build an elephant? Can you build a sukkah on an elephant? Can you build a sukkah on a boat? Can a sukkah be 20 cubits tall? Can you basically build a skyscraper sukkah? That That is it's, the funniest it's, part. It's of literally Mishnah. Talmud as written by Dr. Seuss. Like you can build it. It yeah. is a house. You can build it with a mouse. It's, it's amazing. And so that's number one. Then you have to shake the lulav in a super specific order with saying like one word or parts of one word with every shake in these different directions as you do it. As if that wasn't difficult enough, there are different prayers, different hoshanot or hosannas, if you will, and you have to read one per day per the whole eight-day period. And so every morning you have to figure out exactly where in the span of the holiday you are to read the correct hosanna. It's like it's either the most stressful or the most wonderful thing, depending on what a maniac you are. But the thing is we're encouraged, well, indeed required to dwell in the hut. And so that can be eating in the hut. My kids have had sleepovers in the hut. I mean, and you know, it's in October. If the temperature falls a lot, it's kind of macho, like it was 50 degrees last night, but the kids slept out in the hut. It's a pretty great, it's a, it's the sleepover holiday, among other things. But, but what are we talking about, like in Corona universe? Sorry, Fred Minator, can you tell us a little bit about like, how did we do this holiday this year? Why was this year different from all other years? This year, we actually get to employ all of the fun rules that Liel was talking about in previous years. You build your four-walled hut, and, and, and you sort of laughed at all the rules of it. it could be this small, it could be this big, but, but now the conversation is, well, how do we actually make a sukkah that um, is appropriate for corona? And, uh, for example, our synagogue took to heart the idea that a sukkah only needs to have walls that are 10 tfachim, 10 hand breaths high. And instead of having walls that go all the way to the top, they just have little mini walls because a sukkah, while we consider it to be outside and precarious, is considered inside for coronavirus reasons. You can still spread it, but there are all these really creative ways of doing basically two walls and a tiny bit or or two half walls or really short walls um, and figuring out how to still make it kosher, but have more people in the sukkah. 
That's amazing. And never has the word hand breaths been more scary than it has been this year. Uh, the, the, the hand breath tail blows if, more if than one will. hand away from you. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, look, you know, producer Josh Cross is noting on our chat channel that this year, the entirety of New York City is one giant sukkah because every restaurant has their own little outdoor eating hut type solution. Uh, and so there you are. Celebrate wherever you wish to be. I just want to point out that this is one of those holidays that was really the province of the pretty religious, even just 30 or 40 years ago. Most conservative Jews, I don't think, when I was growing up, ever set foot in a sukkah. It was Orthodox only. I know there are a lot of exceptions, but I think that's a pretty fair claim. And along with Purim, Sukkot has kind of risen up to become a more popular holiday, a holiday understood by people who are not necessarily very religious or highly observant. Raising the question as we raise it every year, what is the next Jewish holiday that's due to, you know, to arrive? Well, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? Sukkot is a harvest festival. It's a great time to talk about the climate. There's a ton of Jewish organizations talking about climate change right now. And like, it's actually the perfect holiday because also you like you sit outside, you can do it without any prayers, I think. Like you can you can really tailor it to your like eco-friendly, organic, grass-fed lifestyle. Your Lululemon yoga mat lifestyle. If you will. At Lulav. Your Lululemon is something that really needs to happen. It's an $85 Lulo. <laughs> Bespoke. But yeah, what's the next holiday? I don't know. I mean, and, and Purim has been such a fun thing because it's like it's the it's the Jewish Halloween, right? So it's right. like more fun than regular Halloween because because you only do it if you're Jewish. Here's my nominee. Yeah. There are so many people who are so down on Valentine's Day. I think we should just reclaim it as Tuba of, right? The the Jewish Valentine's Day, where according to Mishnah, they used to watch the maidens prance about in white in the meadows. And we can mess with the gender of the maidens however we like. We can update it. We can, but we need lots of watching people prance and pitching woo and making love on tuba of. Tuba of is fun. I mean, yes, it's a little problematic when you actually read about it. You're like, so wait, so the maidens dance in white and then everyone looks at them and decides like who is desirable. Anyway, but tuba of, that's fun. It comes after Tisha B'Av, so it's like a nice break from the, you know, the sorrow of Av. You know, I yeah. think we could bring it back. It's a late summer Valentine's Day. Basically. And if you haven't read the piece in Tablet Magazine explaining why tuba of is the holiday we need right now by... Unorthodox guest Sue Halpern do, because it will give you a whole new spin on Tuba. I will say, Liel, that you brought in a great Sum Gedalia piece that we haven't talked about enough on this episode. We've only talked about Sum Gedalia like twice so far. It's um, true. And it is the official us- holiday of Unorthodox. Also by that- Stu Halpern. Yeah, what is that? What is that piece titled? The title of this piece is probably, I think, our greatest moment of journalistic achievement in Tablet. It was called The Fast for the Furious. <laughs> oh, I missed that. That's amazing. <laughs> you get your Vin Diesel and your Torah reference and you're done. Wow. Let's just shut. <laughs> let's just close down the website now. Peak, peak we tablet. Can't, we can't close down the website because Mark. Yes, because we have just welcomed 10 new Tablet Magazine fellows. We started a uh, an internship program on steroids. Uh, the legal kind, the, the prescription kind. This fall, we figured a lot of people would have some time on their hands and it would be a great time to run a supercharged internship program. So instead of taking the one or two interns that we've had some summers for this fall, for October through December, we are taking 10. And we also decided like enough with this limiting it to college students. Let's take applicants ages zero to 120. And we ended up with this incredibly diverse class, diverse in terms of country of origin, continent of origin, age, interests, probably politics. Politics, everything. It's just an incredibly interesting group of people. Six women, four men, not all of them Jews, who are going to be working with us and uh, helping us with our work and pitching us stories and no doubt writing for us. And you should go to tabletmag.com and look at these 10 exceedingly cool people I'm going to have the privilege of working with.
So Liel and Stephanie, you know how when you're texting on the smartphone, sometimes there's an autocorrect that takes your Jewish words. You're doing, you know, Jew texts. And it takes something like Shmini Atzeret and turns it to shithouse or something. It, you know, it, it just misreads something. For some reason, I was texting Tikkun Olam, right, to repair the world. And it changed it to Tikkun Clam, like the, the shellfish, which I just thought was offensive. So I thought we would have a little call to our listeners, which is I want to know what is the most ridiculous autocorrect that you have been given by your smartphone when trying to send a Jewish phrase. Look, I would argue that tikkun clam is actually a deeply Jewish phrase because it's wanting to repair the clam that has been opened for eating. Like it wants to repair it to the state that we wouldn't have eaten it at all. It wants to close up that clam. It wants to heal the clam. Get it off the grill. Because you know that there's some far left Jewish youth group. They're like, we're doing tikkun clam tonight where we'll be eating <laughs> clams and talking about how much we love being Jewish. <laughs> My phone, I think, does the opposite thing, you know? I would say like, oh, it's fall outside, and it turns into, oh, it's Fabrengening outside. <laughs> I just don't understand why my phone always like thinks I'm talking about ducks. Yes. You have zero ducks to give. Listeners, 914-570-4869, craziest Jewy text autocorrect, 914-570-4869. I will say that my, my Shavua Tov always gets changed to Sharia Tov. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That's... We'll need to unpack that one. Yeah. <laughs> news of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. All the news of the Jews this week is from the European lowlands. Uh, the Netherlands, Belgium. Because there's nothing going on in America that might be worth talking about right now. We're just <laughs> nothing is absolutely that. zero. Uh, the Dutch mail is apparently anti-Semitic. According to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the Dutch Postal Service is trying to figure out how a parcel shipped from the Netherlands to Israel was addressed to a postal code ending with the letters, fuck Jews. <laughs> it's confusing. They were actually trying to duck Jews. Right. <laughs> the whole Dutch postal system is an autocorrect scam. Uh, over to Belgium, our favorite European lowlands country. Leo, what's the news from Belgium? Well, in Belgium this week, uh, that will be, of course, the child rape capital of the world. Oh. Two tremendous pieces of news. The first is that the uh, Belgian army, which has long been the custodian of Antwerp's Jewish community, it teaches you a lot about the state of being Jewish in Belgium, that the army was the one keeping the peace, will no longer be keeping the peace. There will be no more protection for the Jews of Antwerp. If you ask yourself why that is, well, it might have something to do with Belgium's new justice minister, the unimprovably named Vincent van Quickenborn, <laughs> who really is like three uh, scars away from being Bond villain number three in some terrible <laughs> movie. Like if that person doesn't have a, a cat, you know, a big fluffy white cat sitting on his shoulder that he sort of caresses as he speaks in a weird accent... Not only is Herr van Quickenborn a fan, it seems, of Hamas, he traveled to Gaza and met with that terrorist organization's uh, supreme leader some years back. He is also very fond of talking about the Jewish lobby controlling things worldwide, which is a comment that he made after some criticized the ridiculously anti-Semitic parade in the Belgium city of Alst, in which literally huge puppets of Jews kind of, you know, 
ejaculating money or whatever they did there uh, were <laughs> out of displayed, their big noses. Right, displayed on parade through city rain. streets. Uh, Von Quickenborn, no protection for Jews. Belgium, you are killing it this week. In Twitter, by the way, Von Quickenborn, there's a tweet that the Jerusalem Post uh, screen grabbed that the first three words are De Jutze Lobby. You can just read the Jewish <laughs> yeah, lobby. So, so that's back in February. The tweet is like, the Jewish lobby is working extra hours. And so it's like, <laughs> he must like this now that all the Jews are off for these holidays. The Jewish lobby is off. Like, it's not working extra hours. Not working overtime. It's very quiet. It's just sitting in a tuts. Um, that Jewish <laughs> lobby. The Jewish lobby, you take the Shabbat elevator to get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to go to the greatest the greatest story of all time. It was made for us. Leaving the Belgian lowlands. Okay, you wanted America? We'll give you America. Stephanie, what is the greatest story in the history of News of the Jews? Sometimes things happen and we're like, did this happen for us? So this is a headline in the Washington Post. It's from a few weeks ago. We've been off for a few weeks. So like, this is current for us. The headline is, Israel's Netanyahu brings his dirty laundry to Washington. Literally. So basically, there's apparently this thing where if, if you're like a head of foreign head of state and you come to America for like official business, there is like a, a clothing cleaning, like that they'll clean your clothes while you're here. And most people like don't do it. But Bibi Netanyahu brings extra laundry to the United States, like brings suitcases. <laughs> this is a quote from a U.S. official. The Netanyahus are the only ones who bring actual suitcases of dirty laundry for us to clean. They're like the college kid home from the semester yes. school who comes home, who comes to America like with his suit on for a meeting and then like six bags of laundry. Right. They're, they're the from couple who goes to the in-laws for Shabbos, be like, hi, we're going to be resting. Here's our laundry. Now, what's funny about this is I have Jewish relatives, I won't name them, about whom it is joked that they come to America and load up on blue jeans, perfume, you know, electronics, all the stuff for which the sales tax is much lower in the United States. So they come with the empty suitcases and return with all this stuff. So now what I'm seeing is like a, a sort of transcontinental back and forth trade in schmatas. Like the, the Netanyahu's bring their dirty laundry here to get it clean. Some Israelis come here to buy future laundry and bring it back like this is this is the basis of of the peace right this is why we're allies this is the special relationship the, the special all, relationship is just about laundry it's laundry based <laughs> See, I, don't know. I, I i read it totally differently i read it as a once upon a time you came here to buy the clothes because america was so great now like israel having gotten its act together it's like you know what you could just do our laundry our, our clothes are kind of nicer. Okay, but this is the craziest thing. So, like, we've talked about the Netanyahu's and, like, the ice cream scandal of 2012 or whatever. There's also a lot of, like, laundry drama for the Netanyahu's in Israel, right? Like, he, in 2016, it says he sued his, he sued Israel's attorney general to prevent not the release of his taxes, like our country, but, like, the release of his laundry bills. <laughs> <laughs> so the details of his laundry bills remain secret, the Washington Post says, pending an appeal from the Supreme Court. It's like, what is going on over there? Why is your drama just like so funny? Usually when you hear about like laundry, it's like, oh, laundering money, stuff like that. <laughs> Israelis took it very little. It's like, what do they want to do? Laundry? We do laundry for you. No problem. You it's know good. that it's like at a hotel when you have to like, if you want to do laundry, it's like, it's dry cleaning. It's not like they put it in a laundry machine. Like, you know, that means that someone is like starching his boxers. <laughs> like, it's just more embarrassing. I will conclude by saying that I am all about dog motifs on my boxers. What do we think Netanyahu's boxers have on them? It'd be too easy to say a Magen David. It's not a Star of David. It's no, something this else. never has a question on this show disturbed me more than this one. Um, but I feel like it's like pictures of himself. 
Like, it's not Israel. It's not It's not like a Israeli flag. I think it's like pictures of like Margaret Thatcher. I think Sarah Netanyahu makes him put pictures of her on his body. There we go. What nauseous. Very disturbing. J. Crew, we joke on the podcast about how our favorite Jewish holiday is Tzom Gedalia, but but that joke goes deeper. Basically, what we're admitting is there are lots of obscure holidays that most Jews don't really know about. And Professor Roberta Qual is a law professor by day, but also a writer on Jewish culture and how to make it more meaningful. And we asked her to talk with us about Hoshana Rabbah, Shmini Atzeret, and all the other holidays and how to reclaim these holidays in the year 2020. Our Jew this week is Roberta Qual. She teaches law at DePaul University, and she's the author of Remix Judaism, Preserving Tradition in a Diverse World. And as we are in the holiday season with so many holidays upon us that we are desperately always trying to remix into something meaningful and interesting, I thought we would check in with her. First of all, so good to have you with us, Professor Qual. Thank you for having me. First, I want you to tell me a little bit about what you mean when you title a book Remix Judaism. What is that? Remix, the concept of remix, which you probably know, you borrow, you appropriate, you miss, you mash, you come up with something new and creative. And so when I was thinking about writing this book, I really wanted to think about particularly religiously liberal Jews, Jews who are Mm -hmm. not living within the system of halakha, and how they can approach Judaism in a way that will be meaningful for them yet still steeped in authenticity. And the concept of remix actually is something that occurred to me. As I was reading it, I was thinking, what she's really saying is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, yes, right? yes I mean, exactly. You're saying like, you can re-engineer these things, you can remix them, but if you don't keep tradition and Jewish law and Jewish heritage in the mix, then you're play acting, you're doing cosplay. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I'm saying. And I'm also saying that ritual is important. And in religiously liberal circles, there are very few Jews who are going to say, I'm going to observe X because God commanded it. So if they're going to observe, they need to find a reason. And the reason has to be because what you're doing matters to you. It's personally meaningful to you because then you'll observe it. It'll become part of your life. It will become absorbed in your essence and you'll have an easier time for those who have children passing it along to their kids. So here we are in the midst of the holiday season, and we got some holidays that nobody knows what to do with. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you Hoshana Rabbah and Shemini Atzeret. And how do you remix them? All right. Well, let's talk about Hoshana Rabbah. So that's the last day of Sukkot. That means that uh, it's the last day you can dwell in a sukkah. It's the last day you can shake the the lulav and the etrog. I think there are two things about Hoshana Rabbah that that I think are really interesting. So the first is that on the morning of Hoshana Rabbah, it's not considered a holy day. So that means when you're in the synagogue, you know, doing the morning prayers, you're doing a processional, which is done on all the days of Sukkot. It's a processional for rain. But then what happens, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't even know this until 10 years ago, and I was at a morning service, and they started smashing the willow, the hour of the willow branch. It's like, what is this? I had never seen this in my life. So I thought that was really interesting. 
in terms of why people do that, there's a whole lot of explanations that we could talk about, but there's really not a unified one. Some people think it's a symbol of the Jewish people's survival despite being beaten. Other people say it's reminiscent of the temple's destruction. You know, Rabbi Brad Artson, he actually said it's sort of motivated by a desire to make the primary symbol of Sukkot, which is the lulav, ritually unfit. So it's sort of like an out with the old and with the new. But the thing is, you can have a lulav and itrog and you're home. And the one thing that I know is that kids love to bang, 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 bang. And so that can be sort of a centerpiece for how you sort of begin to teach kids about this special day where it's okay to bang and you can smash that lulav and itrog. So on a transmission standpoint, I think that's one with young kids that can be very fun. Moving on to older kids and adults. The one thing about Hoshana Rabbah that does resonate with me is that under the tradition, it's the last day that you can do repentance. It's the last day for judgment. And so I think that's really interesting because if you think about our secular culture, you've got New Year's Day and New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and everybody comes up with their resolutions, right? right. And then right. 10 days later, everybody's like, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, that was so yesterday. But here, the Jewish tradition is saying, okay, we've got Rosh Hashanah, we've got Yom Kippur, but then 10 whatever days after that, you've got the closing of the period where you can go back and take stock. It's like, oh yeah, what was my resolution? Could I have been better over the last 10 days about not gossiping as much as I did or whatever? Oh, so it's like a check-in. A check-in, yeah. yeah. And I love that. I really like that because that can appeal to anyone. And so take us out on Shmini Atzeret, which is just a fun one to say. Nobody knows what it is. It is in your book. What is it? And how do you bring it up to date? How do you remix it? Find meaning in it? Well, Shimia Sarat is, it's not considered part of Sukkot. It's actually a separate day completely. And here in the United States, traditional Jews celebrate Shimia Sarat the day after Hoshana Rabbah, so the day after Sukkot ends, and then the day before Simchas Torah. And so really nobody knows what to do with it. You know, I mean, most people's perception is, oh, you know, if you're observant, it's like, oh my God, this is like another day. You know, I'm like, oh, I have to cancel my classes, my poor students. But Shimia Sarat, though, the Hebrew, Atzerat comes from, which is stop. So it's another one of these, okay, stop. You know, you're going to take a break, you're going to stop, and you're going to, again, contemplate and be mindful. One of the more traditional explanations of it, which I actually like a lot, is the idea of God saying to the Jewish people, don't go yet. You know, this is based on the time when there, there were the pilgrimages. It's like, stay with me a little bit longer. You know, I think in today's times, Regardless of what your faith system is and regardless of how actively or inactively you think about God, the idea of stopping and pausing and wanting to stay closer in some ways to your loved ones is something that I think all of us can find attractive. And particularly in a time like today, what we're going through today, where you can't necessarily be physically close to your loved ones. And so that idea of just marking this time and saying, just stay a little bit longer, that concept of right. staying a little longer, let's not rush off, let's not just dive back in to our lives and forget. And that's that ability to just take a moment and breathe and think and stay. I know people talk about it all the time and people talk about meditation, but I have to say that even in my own life, it's really hard to do that. You know, you wake up, you've got a zillion things you need to do, and it's hard to just take those moments and say, I just want to stay a little longer with my family. So I think the way you can remix Shimni Sarah again, in a traditional or even non-traditional way is to sort of say, I want to stay just a little bit longer. Let's try to make this a family day. Let's try to make some special other activity that we can preserve ours together as a family or maybe as an extended family. Well, 
So good to have you. Roberta Qual is professor of law at DePaul University College of Law, and she's the author of the book we've been talking about, Remix Judaism, Preserving Tradition in a Diverse World. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by The New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So I'm going to make a pretty safe assumption here and say that if you listen to this here podcast, there is a pretty good chance that you also maybe listen to National Public Radio. And if you do, you definitely listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the premier game show of NPR and one of the funniest shows on that network. And today we have the pleasure of catching up with the show's host, Peter Sagal. He is a writer, uh, a playwright, a radio host, but most importantly to us, running Obsessed Jews, he is also a marathoner. And we talk to him about radio, marathons, and other challenging things. Our Jew this week is Peter Sagal. He's an American humorist, writer, and radio host. You might know him from National Public Radio's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or the PBS special Constitution USA with Peter Sagal. 
For my purposes, he's most important for The Incomplete Book of Running, which came out two years ago, and it's about resolving midlife crises by taking up jogging, etc. Peter Sagal, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, It's my pleasure, although I don't know if the phrase, our Jew this week, has ever been followed by something good. (laughs) (laughs) We're looking to reclaim the yellow star, metaphorically speaking. Uh, You know, you you could wear it down Broadway with pride. Okay. All right. This is already starting a little unintentionally dark, so let's, let's move on. Oh, you want to lighten it up, do you? Okay. Anyway, we have a lot to get to this week. Thank you so much. Uh, we're all serious fans of your work. The first thing I want to do is I always like getting the backstory. You sort of emerged into our consciousnesses as the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But it's not like you got out of college and became the host of a national public radio humor show. Like, how do you get into that line of work? What was the journey there? Well, as and I love to tell young people this when they ask me for my advice and, and lessons from my own inexorable rise to glory, which is it was entirely dumb luck. Not only did I not get out of college and leap right into public radio production, I had no idea that that would ever even happen. I am a rebuke to all of those people in this world who have a dream early on and do whatever they can to achieve that dream. I just was sitting by the phone one day and it rang. I had been and was pursuing a career in the theater, primarily as a playwright, and I had done that for more or less the first decade after I got out of college. You were going for the big money. I was. I decided that, you know, I had considered a career writing epic poetry. Right but then decided that wasn't financially viable, so decided to become a playwright. It was Goldman Sachs, Georgics, or playwriting. I like Philippics, but that's just me. But here I have to interrupt you. You have, if I'm not mistaken, two brothers. One's a rabbi, one's a lawyer. That's true. There had to be at least one disappointment in the family, right? <laughs> exactly. I want to know the conversation around, you know, the Shabbos table. And you say, Mom, Dad, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to be a playwright. <laughs> yeah, that did not go over well. They were more than a little bit concerned. And I honestly believe that my mother certainly stopped worrying about what I was doing with my life and the fact that I was obviously wasting it six months ago, maybe, I think. <laughs> She's a Jewish mother, by definition, and and she has all the attributes. A warm bosom. A warm bosom, exactly. Love. Yeah, a little passive aggressive. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that she's been saying to me for a long time is, you know, the show's getting good now. <laughs> I mean, is that perfect or what? No, really, I hate to tell you, it's actually getting good, you know. So that, like I said, about six months ago, I think. No, actually, what what I believe honestly turned it around, frankly, and I'm only half kidding, is like all Jews, as they reach their golden age, they felt the inexorable urge to move to Florida in the way that elephants feel the urge to go to the graveyard. And so for about a decade or more now, they've been spending their winters in Florida. And the other people at their development, at their condo development, upon hearing their last name saying, oh, do you, are you related to Peter Sagal? Because they're all Jews. And, um, and then they would say yes, and they'd get a lot of nachas from the enthusiasm. So basically, as soon as it gave them something they could brag about around the... Uh, I would say mahjong table. They actually play tennis, but mahjong is more stereotypical. They started to enjoy it. Being a character on The Simpsons, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. But having Mrs. Rosenberg say, oh, I like your son's work, that's gold. That's exactly right. Okay, so one day the phone rings and and they say, and this is, I believe, you were on episode one, right? You were a panelist. I was. I was a panelist on episode one. I've I've been on almost every episode with the occasional break for vacations and such. What happened is I was in the theater and I got a call one day from a friend of mine. His name is Barry Edelstein is now the artistic director of the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. Another nice Jewish boy who I'm sure his parents are wondering why he didn't go to law school. 
he said, you know, I have these friends who are creating a new show for public radio. They're looking for, and I remember this phrase vividly, smart people who like to read the news, says Barry to me. I thought of you. Would you like to be recommended? Yes, I would. I got a phone call from a producer named David Green, yet another Jew. And I was auditioned and got a job as a panelist. And then they asked me very shortly into the run of the show. This was January of 1998, ladies and gentlemen, if I would consider being the host. And since like all well, Jews, it's been my dream to host my own show on public radio. I said, why not? And here I am 22 years later. Did you have a period where you kept writing plays or do you still? Yes. I honestly thought that I would merely do this as sort of a side gig, get some health insurance while my inexorable rise to the pinnacle of American theater would continue. And that did not happen for a couple reasons. Part of the reason is that, well, most of the reason is that I'm not nearly disciplined enough to have both a day job, a writing career, and a family, which then ensued. And the joke I made was, you know, it's like the old classic joke, you can have a family, a writing career, or a job, you can pick any two of those. <laughs> and that's how it worked for me. I'm sure there are other people, like Scott Simon drives me insane, because Scott Simon has a family, a brilliant career in broadcasting, and he writes a book every year, and I just, I mean... Fucker. Yeah. Inskeep is like that too, Inskeep. That's son of a bitch. Yeah, he really bothers me yeah. because it's not like me where you just like sit around and say, oh, what am I going to make up today? You know, he actually goes out and researches these incredibly rigorous books of American history, which actually take time and discipline. And I just, I just want to smack that smug smile off his talented face. One can only hope he has a bad family life. He doesn't, sadly. I've been to his home. I've met his kids. I've met his wife. No, you, you, it's funny. You look for that, right? This is like the classic. You're like, well, maybe he's, you know, maybe he's a terrible person. Right. Or maybe he's, you know, serial divorces. Or maybe he's like <laughs> mentally ill. No, he's just a wonderful human being who does all his jobs extraordinarily well and never has an unkind word for anybody. And it just drives me mad. So, so let's give him more reasons to be very, very jealous of you and, and get back <laughs> sure. to singing your praises for a little longer. So you start the show. I mean, now having an entertainment program based on the news seems to us like the most obvious things because everyone's doing it. The Daily Show made it basically the biggest format in cable news. Everyone is obsessing about this kind of news-based humor, et cetera. But when you guys were starting, I bet it seemed, I mean, yes, there was We Can Update, you know, 10 minutes of news-based comedy on SNL. But was there a moment in which you thought like, I don't know who would find any of these jokes. I mean, these are jokes about news stories, about politicians, about procedures, about legislation. Like who would, who would find any of this funny? Well, that's a really good question. And it is true that we arose, I mean, for example, Jon Stewart took over The Daily Show just about a year after Wait, Wait started. So we were kind of contemporaneous. And I'm going to say I outlasted Jon Stewart. He couldn't take the heat. Where's he now? Yeah. Now, where is he now? He's raising animals in New Jersey. Quitter. Anyway, um, <laughs> what happened, again, to make it brief, is so NPR started this show and they wanted it to be a quiz about the news. And the show was developed for NPR by Doug Berman, whose great claim to fame, and it is a serious one, was that he was the inventor, creator, and producer of Car Talk, the most successful hour on public radio, and also NPR's only successful attempt at comedy. That was it. <laughs> and so naturally, the idea was, well, we'll do a quiz about the week's news, and we'll try to make it funny. But let's just say there wasn't a lot of institutional knowledge about doing humor at NPR. <laughs> well, that's because the Terry Gross comedy hour really. I know. Oh, so. Terry Gross. I mean, I, I've seen Terry Gross like after hour at some clubs and she goes blue. Let me tell you. <laughs> so well, there we are. We're now doing a comedy show on NPR. And without getting into the history of it all, it wasn't going very well. One of the things that people may not know about public radio, NPR, is that 
NPR does not control what people broadcast. It's entirely up to the individual stations, what they choose to broadcast. So we were having a hard time convincing stations to put on the show. And further, we were having a hard time convincing the stations that did broadcast the show to keep it on. In fact, there was a joke in the system that the real name of the show was Wait, Wait, Don't Cancel Me. <laughs> and so we were had this question, like, what do we do? How do we do this show? What, what do we do to appeal to people? And ultimately, we decided, and I think, by the way, this is probably the secret to everybody's success, to whatever extent they're successful, is we just said, let's just do stuff that we think is funny and see what happens. And that's all we've ever done. We just do things and make jokes about things that we think are funny, that we enjoy, and we record it, and we edit it, and we put it in the air, and we hope that enough people agree with us. And that's it. That's the secret to our success, to the extent that we're successful. And I'm sure if you talk to people who you know make millions and millions of dollars doing this for much larger audiences, people like Stephen Colbert or John Oliver, they'll tell you the same thing. We just do what we think is funny. And there's really no other way to go about it. I tuned in a few weeks ago. I catch you often. Only often, huh? Well, all right, fine, But fine. Well, because I catch you when I'm driving kids places and as I've I understand. been driving kids to fewer places. Yeah, funny how that works. <laughs> And when I caught you, there was no audience. And I assumed, oh, that must be the way things are going in the pandemic. Yes. And all I could think was that for you guys who feed off the energy of an audience as good performers do, that must suck. It does. Again, to get into the history of our show, we actually began that way, doing it in a studio for a lot of reasons that made sense at the time and seemed crazy in, in retrospect. And the show only really became, well, good, as my mother might put it. <laughs> When we started doing it in front of a live audience on a regular basis, as opposed to special occasions, which is how it began. And the reason for that is obvious. If you say things funny, audiences might laugh. And it sounds good. It sounds like a good time. So if you guys have done any performance, you know that a live audience is essential. Because not only do they let you know when you're being funny, and not only does the sound of them laughing make everything sound funnier and better to an audience at home... But the audience just gives you a tremendous amount of feedback on a second-by-second -second basis. They let you know if they're amused, obviously, but also if they're bored or if they're interested and want more, if they're losing their interest and want less, if they're offended, if they're offended but kind of okay with that, so it's all right that you made that joke. A million kind of things are coming at you that you're not even conscious of. And so without them, when we, they were taken away from us, again, we kind of flailed. We had an advantage that I think people like Stephen Colbert or John Oliver didn't have, which is that we have an ensemble show. I'm not the only voice. Stephen Colbert, who I should say is a wonderful person and a fan of our show, he's got the problem of after having that wonderful live audience in the Ed Sullivan Theater, giving him that feedback, all of a sudden he's talking to him in a camera and he doesn't know if anybody's enjoying it, which is very disorienting. They've adjusted, but from the very beginning, we had each other. We had our panelists, Bill Curtis, our guests to screw around with, and it's, it's a pale substitute for an actual live audience, but it's something. You're not like sending your stuff out into a complete void. So I want to dive deeper into the darkness here. So unlike Mark, who is non-committal in his in his love and his fandom, um, I'm very serious about the show. Love it. These last three and a half years, I'm having a really hard time deciding whether or not the glut of news, the torrent of every minute of every day of every molecule of our psychic beings has kind of really delighted you or depress you with its really inimitable darkness. What is it like to do the show when the news very often to a lot of people feels, you know, kind of grim and like life altering? It's hard. And, you know, as you can imagine, when the news is often so depressing, alarming, upsetting, and your job is to somehow make light of it, it's tough. There are weeks when I'm like, oh God, I would so much love to just be able to ignore the news for a while, but of course my job is to pay attention. 
the reason that we're able to do it and the reason that I think we're able to get up every week as we will today, Monday, when we're recording this and go forward and do it again is because we have learned over certainly the last four or five years that our show is, well, let me put it this way. At its best, our show is not an addition to the glut of news coming at people, but a relief from it. And there are two reasons for that. One is, is because of our tone, which we try to keep light and upbeat and funny and enjoyable. And another is because, you know, even though I'm flattered by comparisons to people who do this for real, like Oliver or Seth Meyers, very little of our show is about the main stories of the news. Most of our show is silly and happy bullshit. And people love it. People love the dumb stories about animals down their pants or just for any reason, put an animal down your pants. We'll mention it on our show. <laughs> and the best way I can describe how we approach our job is this. We were doing our show, it was the week of the Kavanaugh hearings, and we happened to be in LA at the Greek theater. So there are like 9,000 people, and believe me, I find it hard to believe that that happens too, waiting to hear us. And we were all backstage, and, and we had just spent all day watching these hearings in which Kavanaugh was screaming and yelling, and these credible accusations of sexual assault were being buried, and et cetera, et cetera. And everybody, as you can imagine, was very upset. And I said to our panelists, I know we're all upset for good reason, but everybody sitting out there is also upset and they're relying on us to make them feel better. So let's go do that. And we did to whatever extent we could. And the thing that I enjoy explaining to people when they come up to me and say, oh, listening to your show every week gives me a break and makes me feel better and makes me feel more cheerful or at least distracts me for an hour. Thank you so much. Is like, it does the same for us. <laughs> You know, if I was somebody whose job was to go on some cable news panel show and talk about how awful everything is in hopefully more original terms than the last time I was asked to talk about how awful everything is, I would probably end up getting really depressed. But my job is to go on and find what we can in the news that's delightful or funny or strange or shocking or mockable or satirical and be cheerful about it. And that actually is is a blessing to us. Do you ever get any of that pushback that I think all of us who try to be funny get sometimes when the news is is very, very stressful and some people have this attitude of, how can you laugh? How tasteless it is of you to find mirth at a time when this horrible thing is going on, when the fires, yes. you know, the stormtroopers going to Portland, the fires in, in Washington, Oregon, how dare you? And they, it's as if they want a comedy free world. Yes. That's a feeling out there. It is absolutely a feeling. And sometimes we get pushback depending on our jokes, but I'm pleased to say that I think our audience, which is a public radio audience, which is a very good audience and a very aware audience. A lot of tote bags. A lot of tote bags is they, I think, understand well enough what we're trying to do. My guess is, is they think of us in the way that they think of, like, like the Emmys last night. Again, we're recording this the day after the Emmys. And there are a lot of people talking about the Emmys on Twitter and in social media. And one thing you could say to those people is, why do you care about the Emmys? The world is on fire, literally. Or sports. Why are you talking about sports? You know, where the authoritarian movement in America is gaining strength, blah, blah, blah. But everybody understands that sports and the Emmys and entertainment and art and all these other things provide everybody a relief. And I hope that people, even though we're about the news, think of our show as that, as like, yes, everything's on fire, everything is terrible, but let's listen to Paula Poundstone rant about a scientific study for a while and we'll all feel a little better. And I believe that's how we're, we're accepted and certainly that's how we offer ourselves. Amen. 
All right. So a few years ago, for some crazy reason, because runners are crazy, you decided to take up running. More or less. I had always been a runner off and on since adolescence, but I had been off for a long time. And so around the time I turned 40, which was 15 years ago, people, I said, my God, I'm turning 40. I'm going to die someday. (laughs) (laughs) Therefore, I want to spend a lot of my remaining years running? Sort of. But it was more like, I know if I run a marathon, that means I won't die. That's the level of thinking, and it doesn't make any sense, but it worked so far. And so I ran a marathon in 2005 in Chicago, my first one. I finished it in a little over four hours, and every single muscle, vein, tendon, neuron in my body hurt. And I had always assumed that if I had ever done that, I would say, okay, check that off the list. Now I'll go hike Nepal or buy a sports car. That's exactly my assumption. I run half marathons. And I always think if I got to a full marathon, I'd feel like, okay, right. Time to time to try open marriage or LSD. Or- <laughs> exactly. You know, what's next in the checklist? <laughs> right. You know? And an amazing thing happened, something that given my completely unathletic background, I never imagined I would ever think or say to myself. But what I thought and said to myself as I limped away from the finishing shoot of the Chicago Marathon was... I wonder if I can do that faster. And so much to my surprise, I devoted myself to actually improving as a runner. And I did. And I ran the next year's Chicago Marathon in a much quicker time and qualified for Boston, went to Boston, ran Boston, met the editor of Runner's World, who asked me if I would like to be a columnist for that magazine, became a columnist. And the next thing I know, I have this sort of weird second career as an amateur long-distance runner, which, believe me, nobody looking at me at high school would ever have predicted any kind of athletic glory for that guy. How many have you run now? In the teens, right? 16. 16 to date. How fast have you got? My fastest ever was in 2011. Thank you so much for the opportunity to brag. When I set out to to set a PR, personal record, and did it, I ran a the Philadelphia Marathon in three hours and nine minutes. Wow, that's really I, good. I, yeah. That is incredible. It felt pretty good at the time. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'll never do that again, but you know, I can look back on it with some pride. And you know, the thing about running, and, and there are a lot of things about running, I even wrote a book about all the things about running, is it's not like tennis maybe or or any kind of sport where you're like trying to win it's a sport where your achievement really should be measured against your own goals right there was no moment in my life given my physique and my athletic ability where i ever could have run a marathon at 235 it's not going to happen however it turned out that given enough well at the time discipline and intent and training and persistence i was able to run a marathon in 309 which for me was you know an Olympic gold medal. And and that's the great thing about running is that you set your own goals. And as long as you focus on those goals, set them correctly and pursue them correctly, it can be as gratifying to you as winning an Olympic gold might be for an actual athlete out there. And then in 2013, you're there at the finish line, I believe like something like 100 or 200 yards away from the finish line in Boston. Mm-hmm. When the bomb goes off, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, And that's another long story, which I won't bore everybody with now. But basically, there's a related thing, because I ran that PR marathon in 2011, and I sort of ran out of steam. I mean, I pretty much knew I'd never do better than that. And then once (laughs) I was like, well, if if I'm never going to do any better than that 309, and I keep mentioning the time because I'm proud of it, what's the point of continuing to do this? And somebody, a wonderful young man named Josh Warren at a place called Team with a Vision, which is a charity athletic organization in Boston said, hey, why don't you come and be a guide for us at the Boston Marathon in 2013? And I was like, that's great since I'm not quite sure why I should continue to try to run marathons. I will certainly be, it's a wonderful reason to do it is to run it for somebody else, specifically a visually impaired runner named William Greer who wanted to run his first Boston and it qualified. 
And so there I was with no anticipation of what kind of day it was going to be, where we ran the marathon. The story I tell, if you want to hear it, I tell it in a moth story and also in the first chapter of my book. And he heroically finished the marathon, enduring extraordinary difficulties. And we were sort of hunched over and trying to recover from the effort about 100 yards past the finish line when the bombs went off on the other side of the finish line, i.e. the race side. We were on the shoot side. And so we were there. Uh, I'm a witness to the Boston Marathon bombings. In fact, I've been a witness to three world historical events, the LA riots, the Boston Marathon bombings, and uh, the night when Seth Meyers and Barack Obama made fun of Donald Trump at the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner, inspiring him to run for president. <laughs> Which of those had a more catastrophic effect right. on America? I will let to other people, other people to judge. So most important of all, when you and your brothers get together, you've got the lawyer, the rabbi, and the whatever it is you do, whatever you call yourself. <laughs> whatever it is I do. And I just imagine like... When you're sort of fetching, how's work going? You know, I mean, is your brother a congregational rabbi? Does he have a pulpit? He is. He, he has a pulpit in Rumson, New Jersey, as we speak. You know, does he say, like, what do I do with this congregant who won't shut up? You know, and meanwhile, <laughs> he's pitching you jokes for, wait, wait, don't tell me. I mean, is there, or is it just like being a tourist in an entirely different world? Somebody could argue, and probably somebody has, that all three of us, the Sagal boys, ended up in, in one variety of entertainment. I'm in public radio making fart jokes. <laughs> My older brother, the rabbi, is trying to entertain, inspire, and retain the affections of a congregation. And my younger brother, of course, is a rather talented litigator and is arguing in front of juries and or judges uh, and trying to entice and amuse and uh, sway them. So we're all we're all tumblers, to put it mm -hmm. uh, in a Yiddish way, in a way that I think our ancestors would have appreciated. So when's the next book? The last book was 2018, The Incomplete Book of Running. What's coming up? My schedule, and this is a sense of my discipline, is I write a book every 10 years, whether I want to or not. Ruthlessly. I just try to keep it to that ruthlessly. Self-driving. That's the kind of prolific son of a bitch I am. I'm actually working on a, a book, well, a project that I hope will become a book. In the very brief version of what it is, I've referred to my age a couple times already. I turned 55 years ago. And for that reason, and a bunch of other reasons, he said meaningfully, but without expanding on, I had occasion to sort of reconsider a lot of things that I had believed about life and myself and how to pursue things and how to present things and how to treat oneself and other people. And I said to myself, only oh, if only I had known these things back when I needed to know them, things might, might have gone better. And so I've really become obsessed with all the stuff people learn the hard way through life, through mistakes, through misjudgments. And I've been inviting people to share with me, uh, sometimes with audiences and live events, what it is they learned. And so I'm working right now on a magazine project, which will do that in print for the first time. And then hopefully if that comes out well, We'll see about uh, producing a book, basically the wisdom of the aged. Stuff for you you youngsters. Stuff we wish we knew when, you were your, when I was your age, if only I had known. And of course, the danger is I, I, basically what I'm becoming is I'm becoming a Jewish parent. Before we let you go, we're obliged to ask you one more time. What was that personal record again, the marathon? <laughs> it was three hours and nine minutes. That is a very excellent time. I felt pretty good about it. As Adam Sandler would say, not too shabby. Not too shabby. A nice Jewish boy. The radio show is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The book is The Incomplete Book of Running. The man is Peter Sagal. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I guess I should let America know, yes, I am Jewish. <laughs> I, felt good. I feel good being open about it. <laughs> ah, the mystery. Oh, yeah, I know. Last who who knew? Solved. The cat is out of the bag. In the media? In your line of work? Impossible. I know. Who knew?
hey guys, I'm sorry that we aren't going to get to the mailbox this week. We just got so much else going on, but uh, we want to get back to your letters and voicemail. So please write to us. Tell us what you think. Complain to us. Kvetch at us. Or just love us. 914-570-4869. Again, that's 914-570-4869. Try to keep your voicemails to 60 seconds-ish, you know, if you want to get them played on the air. Or you can write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. J. Crew, I really dig David French, even though I agree with him on almost nothing. He's a senior editor at The Dispatch, and he's the author of the new Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. I want to say that we spoke with David a couple weeks ago before the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before the spread of COVID in the Trump White House. Uh, a lot has happened, a lot of water under that bridge. But I think the conversation holds up. Have a listen. His new book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. And uh, he's a Christian dude. He's got a beard. He's pretty conservative, but he doesn't like Donald Trump. Gets him a lot of guff. David, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm incredibly honored to be the Gentile of the Week. Before we go any further, we have to check and make sure to be a true bona fide Gentile of the Week. Do you have any Jewish ancestry at all? A mom's mom somewhere back there? I could tell you how Gentile I am, but it's embarrassing. Oh, tell us. Born in Opelika, Alabama, grew up in rural Kentucky, went to a small evangelical college in Tennessee. By complete miracle, got into Harvard Law School. So I'm intimidated out of my mind. I'm like a fish out of water, you know, and we had a Sunday brunch that our criminal law professor threw. And I walk in there and there is bagels and locks mm. on the table to eat. I'd never seen locks. Or as your preacher called it, devil food. <laughs> so I'd never seen it. So I take it, I, I just follow what everyone does. I put the locks on the bagels and the cream cheese and I, I started to eat it. And then I said out loud, mm, this, this sushi is good. And because I'd never had sushi and it, it seemed raw, at which point the whole room starts to laugh. And a friend of mine, a guy I just met comes up to me and he says, um, you don't, you don't know many Jews, do you? And I said, uh, no, do you? <laughs> and he said, um, my name is Rosenberg. And I said, and, <laughs> and so, right. See, Genta, we, we Jews think that everyone can spot us, but I always try to tell my friends, no, when you get to places where there are no Jews, they just look at, you know, most Jews, if you're a white looking Jew, they look at you and say white dude with the German ish or European last name. They don't, you don't actually have Judar when you grow up in Kentucky. <laughs> no, no. And so at that point, I was kind of a laughing stock for several days as the guy who never left his town. <laughs> There's a lot to cover. I like your writing a lot. I agree with you about 19 to 23% of the time. That's good. And the rest of the time, you're fucking insane. <laughs> but a lot of people will know you if they tune into contemporary opinion writing as somebody who was, well, you served in Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. Were you in the Advocate Corps? Is that right? I was a JAG officer. Yeah, Judge Advocate General. I was uh, with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. You've written a lot about the law and about the military and other stuff for a long time for National Review. Yeah. But you've had some fallings out. You're now writing your own newsletter. Do you want to just catch up our audience who doesn't know your work for the split that's happened between you and a lot of your friends on the right? Yeah. So I didn't come up in the world of journalism. I came up in the world of law, as you referenced. So I was for a long time a constitutional 
lawyer. And here we should say a lot of the work you did in the lawsuits you filed was trying to expand, as you saw it, a lot of our listeners would disagree with your yeah. take on it, but as you saw it, expanding the rights of Christians in the public square. Yeah. So a lot of it was that. Also, I worked for a while for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and we were completely nonpartisan. So I've worked, basically, if you look at my legal work, it is about defending the First Amendment. I've been a civil libertarian lawyer for a long time. And I was writing sort of on the side as a hobby throughout that period. And around 2015, I decided I wanted to do something else. And so National Review was generous enough to hire me. I had been writing for them regularly for a long time, but I joined them full time in May of 2015, the month before Trump came down the escalator. Frankly, I just thought he was horrible. <laughs> I mean, on every level, you know, as somebody described it to me, they said, what were your objections to Donald Trump? I said, well, it was to his character his policies and his personnel. Other than that, <laughs> it's great. And so during the 2016 campaign, I became one of those conservatives who said, I'm never supporting Donald Trump. I'm just never supporting him. He's not my idea of what a leader of any movement should be, much less a leader of the Republican Party. And then sort of nominally also because the Republican Party has been so closely tied to the conservative movement, a leader of American conservatism. And so I, you know, along with a small merry band of others, dissented from the Trump nomination, refused to vote for him. Who'd you vote for? I voted for Evan McMullen. So I'm one of the very small slice of people who voted for McMullen. So I, I voted for neither Trump nor Hillary. And it has caused a intense at a level that's hard to really describe, a very intense break on the right. And it's created a lot of ideological intensity, a lot of emotional intensity. And there is a, especially on some parts of what you would call the MAGA right, there's a very visceral hatred of never Trumpers, regardless of the reason for the never Trumpiness, whether they've gone over to the left more or they remain conservative, but will never embrace Trump. It's just, it's very visceral. They believe the stakes of 2016 were existential. They believe the stakes of 2020 are existential. And somebody like me who does not agree with that and somebody like me who, in fact, thinks that the alarmism of the moment is more of a danger than the policy differences of the moment is, in fact, the one with his head in the sand. And that, therefore, there is a Benedict Arnold narrative that takes place. People get really, really angry when I say the crisis isn't as bad as you think it is. And part of it is this sort of they really do think it's as bad. And but part of it also is the convincing themselves it's this bad is how they have rationalized supporting someone that if you told them in May 2015, you're going to support a guy who has paid hush money to porn stars, who's engaged in blatantly racist speech, who has mishandled a pandemic that has cost almost 200,000 Americans their lives, who's mishandled a crisis in race relations that's led to rioting and mass protests across the United States, who has cozied up to dictators in the most flattering terms we've ever seen in the modern era of an American president who tried to condition foreign aid to a desperate independent ally on an investigation, not just of a political opponent, but a crazy conspiracy theory. You could go down the line and they'd say, how little do you respect me to think that I would support that? But, you know, there's sort of this sunk costs here. And every time you remind people that the stakes aren't as existential as you think, I think it reminds them of the extent of the compromise that they have made, a staggering compromise if you just rewound the clock a little bit. I'm really interested in the psychology of this. Did you have any friends or peers who you saw go through this, this sort of bargaining and negotiation on their way to embracing Trump, where there were these moments where they knew this guy's horrible, and then you saw they did the kind of psychological labor to make it all fit 
because they couldn't live with that tension. So I, in 2016, I lived in a rural Tennessee precinct. I now live in a suburban Tennessee precinct. They're both equally red, I think, but culturally different. So my precinct in 2016 voted 72% for Trump. And here, here's the process that I saw. During the primaries, no, please, no, no, anybody but this guy, please no. Then he wins the nomination and then it goes like this. Well, you can't honestly expect me to sit this one out because Hillary is so bad. And then going into election day with an incredible sense of resignation, I cannot believe we're going to lose to Hillary Clinton. And I cannot believe primary voters chose this guy. This sort of almost like I'm going to the polls out of a sense of duty and it's going to be awful. And I'm so dispirited, followed by this change starting at about 10 p.m. Eastern time on November 8th of what Hillary's losing. He beat Hillary. And a lot of people, I think, completely underestimate the extent to which that moment bonded Trump emotionally and psychologically to millions and millions and millions of Republicans because he beat Hillary. They went from hopelessness to hope, you know, at the snap of a finger in about a 45 minute span on election night. And then, you know, here's the thing. You can say all day I'm voting for the lesser evil, but nobody likes to be on team lesser evil. And a lot of times when you press that voting button, what you're kind of doing emotionally and psychologically is you're enlisting on that side. And so you're going to look for all of the ways in which your side is right and good and fine. And there is an entire conservative media entertainment complex that is dedicated to describing to you why your side is good and right and fine and why the left is terrible and horrible and evil. And so if you talk to, you know, outside of that group of people who are like my very close friends who read what I write and they follow me on Twitter or they know my thoughts. But outside of that group, if you were going to survey your average Republican near where I live about Trump scandals, they're not going to know many of them, honestly. They're really not, but they're going to know chapter and verse of every scandal on the left. And so, you know, as I've described to a lot of my friends in more progressive parts of America, I say, if you had their knowledge set, you'd probably support Trump as well, because their knowledge set is based in large part on amplifying the malice and perfidy of the other side and acting completely as sort of the lawyer for Donald Trump. But part of this was set up by bargains that evangelical Christianity made over many years as it sought to be an influencer in culture, right? So for example, before Ronald Reagan was a serious candidate, a lot of conservative Christians would never have thought of supporting a divorced person for president. And then once it became clear that this divorced guy was going to be a great conservative president, you guys never talk about divorce as, I mean, I don't stigmatize divorced people, but a lot of people in conservative Christianity felt that was a real issue up until the moment when you had a great candidate. And then it kind of just fell away as an issue. But he never won a percentage of evangelicals as high as Trump did. No, that's true. But he became kosher in a way. But you're saying that actually evangelicals vote was more up for grabs back then, that it was less tied to one party. Yeah, much more. It was more up for grabs. It's, it's been less up for grabs progressively as time has gone by. And the reason for this is a phenomenon I talk about in my book, a negative partisanship and the law of group polarization, which is essentially says I'm with my team, not because I love my team's policies or the people on my team, but because they're not the other team. We hate the enemy more than we love our own side. It's about hating the enemy. Anybody but the Yankees. Exactly. And so this has such a distorting effect on our politics. And it's not just who we vote for. It's also on a policy issues like this indescribably stupid mask culture war, for example. 
My friend Rod Dreyer wrote a really insightful piece several weeks ago about the sort of folk libertarian conservative backlash against masking. And he said they view it as a condensed symbol of the progressive technocratic elite. So they're going to just reject it. And so what ends up happening is we accept or reject policy positions based not necessarily on their merit, but on who's advocating them. When you are in the grips of negative partisanship, the primary value changes and the primary value is defeating the other side. That beats everything else. So white evangelicals, when you realize negative partisanship is the driver and white evangelicals are the probably the most potent constituency within the Republican Party, you can see why they went from the group of people who are most likely to say that character mattered to the group that now is least likely to say that character mattered because they don't want anything to impede the victory. Right. Your new book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. And negative polarization is a big piece of what you're talking about. And I want to ask you, first of all, just to explain to us better than I can what the book argues, why there's a secession threat. But then also go to how to restore our nation. What I do in the book is it has three parts. Everybody knows we're incredibly highly polarized and at each other's throats. I mean, this is you don't need to write a book to say that you can just like turn on television or open up the Twitter app. So it has three parts to say not that, hey, we're divided. It's here's why it's not getting better anytime soon. Here's what this could mean for our national union. And here's how to try to fix it. With the full humility and knowledge that this is a complicated separation of the United States that's rooted in geography, that's rooted in politics, it's rooted in religion, it's rooted in ethnicity. There's a lot going on here. So you can't just sort of say, here's my four-part plan to heal our land. So what I essentially say is this. Look, if you look back at the history of the United States of America, where have we had our worst tensions or where has there been the highest degree of secessionary impulse? And the two actual acts of secession are 1776 and 1861 and 1776 for good, 1861 for ill. And in both of those, what you had was a situation where you had a geographically contiguous, culturally distinct section of a larger whole that believed its fundamental culture was under attack even to the point where they were felt physical danger. And what we have now are these the big sort is a concept that comes from a 2009 Bill Bishop book that says that Americans are clustering geographically, which has caused Americans to live increasingly with people of like mind, combined with the religious changes in the United States of America, which are also tracking with the big sort, combined with American political polarization, which is tracking with the big sort. We are creating these huge geographically contiguous areas of the United States that have a distinct culture. And that distinct culture, politicians and cultural figures and religious figures argue, is under siege. The only thing really lacking is sort of a sense of immediate physical danger. And as political violence ratchets up in the United States of America, even that is beginning to change. And one of the things that I say is we can't assume that simply because there are a lot of ties that bind us together that those can't be broken. In fact, America has a history of breaking those ties and that liberty and union do not prosper in an atmosphere of hatred and enmity and fury. And so in the middle of the book, I posit some scenarios of how we could actually break up. And those are the things I think are most sort of provocative about the book. And I've had a lot of interesting feedback where people say, I read that and it was chilling. And then other people have said, I read that and I thought, oh, it's a little alarmist. But then the final thing that I do is I say, look, we have to re-embrace the very concept of pluralism, that what we have right now is we have illiberal movements, right and left, that are rejecting pluralism, that are rejecting small-l liberalism, 
and are essentially deciding that the way through this cultural conflict is to dominate, not accommodate. And so my argument is a return to the Bill of Rights, which really protects sort of that individual dignity and that individual autonomy, and then also a return to federalism or an attempt to de-escalate national politics so that a progressive community in California doesn't have to depend much on Ted Cruz to create a polity that respects and advances their political values. And a conservative community, say in Tennessee, doesn't have to depend very much on Nancy Pelosi to form its own community that reflects its political values. And so one of the things that I argue is that when you have increasing diversity on all of these strands and increasing separation along all of these bases, then increasing centralization, particularly increasing consolidation of power in one person, the president, those two things are incompatible and they create an enormous amount of strain in the system. Part of it isn't just political, it's also cultural. I guess I wonder how that looks from a conservative point of view. I mean, it's easy to ridicule the pretensions of the bourgeois left. Okay, so we have our silly, pretentious Brooklyn habits are you afraid of encroachment of those onto your McMansions and trucks? Like, what, what's the fear if the Whole Foods comes to the area? Our fear is you're going to bring guns. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, right or wrong, that's a real fear. What's your fear of the left culturally? The people who hate religious conservatives and believe that religious conservatives are the equivalent of white nationalists, for example, will run our government and run the culture. A good example of that was in the Obergefell oral argument in 2015. Justice Alito asked the Obama Solicitor General if a religious college, for example, maintains its rules about sexual morality, which are sex is only appropriate between a married man and woman, would its tax exemption be at risk? And rather than saying, no, its tax exemption won't be at risk. The Solicitor General essentially said, we'll look into this. Well, this was like this big alarm bell. I, I forget which law professor said that that was the oral argument answer that cost Hillary the election. I mean, there's a million things in an election right. that close that cost it. But so in essence saying, hey, American Christians, the way you want to educate your children is now going to be much more governed by the state. And the explosion of sort of like woke capital. So for example, all of these companies that came to boycott Indiana because of its Religious Freedom Restoration Act law, which is very similar to the federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act law enacted under Bill Clinton, yet will do business in the PRC, the People's Republic of China, happily and willingly. And so a lot of conservative Christians say, wait a minute, you have more antipathy towards Southern Baptists than you do against the Chinese Communist Party. And so you're, what you're saying is we can't educate our children the way we want to educate our children, and we probably can't even work at your company because of our core values. And this is how it's perceived. I couldn't agree more about the hypocrisy, right? I mean, try to get people on the left to really care about the concentration camps for Uyghurs in China right. or about Chavez's abuses or, I mean, no argument from me there. But I think you're being a little bit precious and nerdy about who the Christian right is. I mean, yes, you're a real Christian college kind of guy. And I've been to some of these schools. I've reported from them. And there really is a serious evangelical core who are sending their kids to colleges where they're not supposed to have premarital sex and they're not supposed to drink. And, you know, I've been to colleges where dancing is still forbidden, right? But most of the, quote, Christian right, the millions of voters that make it a potent voting block are still people having premarital sex, people who may or may not have had abortions, people whose kids are drinking and dancing and going to state universities, right? It's a culture. They, there aren't that many 
people who are as serious about their Christianity as you're making it out to be. It's a cultural signifier. It's a cultural thing that's going on, not an actual scripture thing, except for a minority of people like you. I would say you're correct. And the reason, one of the ways in which you know you're correct is because of the wholehearted embrace of Donald Trump, which contradicts multiple core statements of Christian values made for years by conservative Christians. And so that's one of the arguments that I've made when I, I talk. And, and you know, by the way, if you look at why is it that evangelicals support Trump, what's really the most important thing? Because a lot of the arguments you get when you're sort of on this never Trump side is are along these lines. Well, you must not care about religious liberty or you must not care about abortion. But I know enough about the sort of the larger evangelical conservative movement at this point to know that I think some of you guys are flinging that at me in bad faith because I think we all know that if you look at the evangelical vote, it doesn't really, outside of maybe a few core, the core activist community, abortion is down the list of important priorities. A religious liberty is down the list of important priorities. And in fact, Ryan Burge, who's a, who does an enormous amount of work sort of sorting out how do evangelicals and on what basis do evangelicals really vote and sort of what sort of the statistical world makeup of the American evangelical community says, Actually, immigration restrictionism is more important to the average evangelical voter, white evangelical voter, than abortion. So yeah, this has been one of my complaints is that, hey guys, if your position is that there are certain strong moral declarations that we stand for, A, B, C, D, and E, you can't throw out A, B, and C and then say, well, look how serious we are about D and E. I mean, this is one of the, you know, in 1998, the Southern Baptist Convention executed a, a resolution or voted on a resolution on the importance of character in political leaders. So what's going on in 1998, Mark? Oh, it's, it's Lewinsky. It's Clinton and Lewinsky, right. So the Southern Baptist Convention said that tolerance of serious wrong by leaders sears the conscience of a culture and spawns immorality and surely will result in God's judgment. So this is something that was completely non-controversial amongst white conservative evangelicals in the late 1990s. And if you were going to ask, even running up to 2015, a conservative white evangelical about the importance of character, heck yeah. And then all of a sudden Trump comes on and boom, that's all gone. And I will bring this up to people. I'm like, wait a minute, were we wrong in 98? And if we were wrong in 98, don't we owe an apology to Bill Clinton? Al Mohler, who just came out in favor of Donald Trump for 2020 after he was rejecting Trump in 2016, famously said that if he ever came to support Donald Trump, he'd have to issue an apology to Bill Clinton. Yeah. So what's his excuse now? Well, I don't know that an apology is forthcoming, but he said that it's about abortion and religious liberty. Now, I don't doubt for a moment that Al Mohler cares about abortion and religious liberty a great deal, that this is legit deep concern for him. No question. He's not a pretextual guy like some folks are. But, you know, for a long time, that wasn't it. That was not the only thing. So, you know, there's a lot going on here, but the bottom line is the people who purport to speak for the Republican evangelical vote are not the casual Christians. They're the leaders of Christian institutions and purport to be offering a moral guidance and a moral leadership. And often what they end up do is just sort of affirming the partisanship more than offering leadership. 
I mean, like leaders of most institutions, and certainly Judaism suffers from this as well, they're about power now, right? Isn't that what's going on? I mean, it's a, it's an alliance for power. Well, and, and you're always able to justify power, right? You can say, look at all the good things I can do with the power that I get. So I don't even know who the third party can. I don't know what your options are this time around, who you're going to vote for. Can, can you educate me? Who's out there? Who's there for David French? Well, I haven't really, do- I haven't dived into the Libertarian Party candidate. One of the heartbreaks of 2016 to me was how badly the Libertarian Party fumbled the ball. Like if there was an option at that point to nominate somebody who could have maybe gotten on the debate stage and done something real. Now, I think 2020, the third party option is just sort of virtually irrelevant. So not sure yet who you're voting for. Second question. I know that when I'm attacked in social media or anywhere, it hurts most coming from the left. Like I actually don't care if someone on the right attacks me. I I may have heard of him or her, but whatever the case, it's like it literally rolls off my back. It's what I expect. But when somebody very close to me who I think would be open to my what I see as my fine gradations of thought or my nuance just rejects me, it's really, it's painful. I'm sure it's that way for you when you get it from the right and you've gotten it a lot. How do you handle that? Like, has your skin just totally thickened or do you find yourself thinking, well, I'll just go be a liberal because they'll be nicer to me right now, which is what some <laughs> liberals do, which is they just switch and become conservatives. Like, how do you handle it? What's happening? And Mark, you hit upon something very interesting that I think is very, very important. And that is this. If you're on the right and you get a critique from the left, you can just shrug it off. It doesn't matter. In fact, it builds your brand. Right. If you're triggering the libs, it shows you're your getting brand. under their skin. Yeah. But if you're on the right and you get a critique from the right, That's a whole another thing. And so the vengeance and the fury of sort of the illiberal right is much more often directed at liberal members of the small L liberal members, classical liberal members of the conservative movement, because that's where the betrayal is. Right. That's where the really effective opposition is. And so there's this sense of fury and anger and betrayal. And you sometimes see this in the left. I mean, a lot of cancel culture, as I've explained to a lot of people, sort of blue on blue. You will have people who are much more further to the left taking on people who are more, you know, not even on a policy basis, more centrist, but sort of more small L liberal. And so what I have found is that we kind of have two culture wars and two political wars going on right now. One is the old school gun control, not gun control, abortion limitations, not abortion limitations, the old school right left policy differences. But we have a real rise of illiberalism in this country. And people who are on the right and on the left who are small L liberals are, in fact, I think, importantly banding together to defend liberalism, defend sort of the structures of the American Constitution and the rule of law. And that's an interesting coalition that falls apart the instant you start talking about gun control. I don't know. I think we could find if you guys give up your demands for AR-15s, I'll (laughs) sign on to your gun permits for your little revolver. Deal? We can do. We can settle uh, this now. See, it's already falling apart. Uh. <laughs> Thank you so much. The book is divided. We fall. It came out last month. It's about the potential coming American secession and how we can thwart it. David and I will be thwarting it. We'll be right in the middle. We'll be thwarting. We'll be somewhere. 80 miles outside of Denver, where the blue shades into red, and we'll be thwarting. Basically, hatred has consequences, and we cannot (laughs) keep hating each other and thinking that everything's going to be okay. I mean, that sounds sort of like basic, but isn't that the truth? David French, you've been a fabulous Gentile of the week. (laughs) Will you come back sometime and drop some more Christian love on us? (laughs) I'd love to. I'd love to. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Everyone, go read Divided We Fall. 
Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? My very dearest friend, Irene, had a baby this weekend. And so I want to welcome Samuel Theodore Rudnick officially to the to the J crew. Um, I assume he's he's been listening in utero um, and he's also been listening to me on the phone with his mother uh, a lot in utero. Um, and I'm really excited to meet him. So I just want to say mazel tov to Ben and Irene on their new baby boy. I foresee great things for young Sammy Rudnick. Like Sammy Rudnick is going to be a Gaga champion at summer camp. Sammy Rudnick is going to be president of the Sammy fraternity at a leading university. I, I just see great things. There's no way Sammy Rudnick doesn't thrive. I mean, leaving his his parentage aside, which is primo. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I have a two, three pronged mazel tov. So, you know, a mazel throv. Uh, a muscle throb. <laughs> the uh, shuls we belong to chose this year for obvious reasons to go virtual, uh, which is something that you know works for some people, doesn't doesn't really work for us. And so we were sort of spiritually, communally homeless. Found ourselves um, in an amazing kind of pre-Sukkot Sukkah outdoor shul enclosure uh, with the Chabad of the West Side, and to Rabbi Chaim and Rebbe Sarah Alevsky, and to Rabbi. Eliyahu Sapo Sapochkinski, who really rocked an amazing, long, special service. Thanks, guys. You made the days of awe truly awesome. And two mazel tovs from me this week. First of all, mazel tov to our erstwhile guest and unorthodox fave Michael Twitty on his marriage to Taylor Keith. Gentlemen, we are so happy for you. We send you buckets full of Mazel Tovs in 5781. And also a very personal, uh, close-to-home Mazel Tov a certain daughter of a certain Jew caster may or may not have made varsity soccer as a fresh person at her high school, one of only four fresh people to do so. And, you know, the soccer talent skips a generation in the Oppenheimer family. Her, her grandpa, having been an NCAA Division One soccer player at a fine university. And, and her great-great-grandfather being the, the <laughs> Dinamo Minsks uh, power forward. That's right. It's every other. No, uh, or somehow it swerves off to the uncles. There were some uncles uh, who, who got the talent. But let's just say dad didn't get the, uh, the, the, the foosball talent, but daughter did. And so enormous nachos pouring forth, flowing from all of the doorways at Oppenshire Manor. Uh, we're just bursting with pride. Mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, and our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Jessica Spitalnik-Mates from Temple Bethel in Boca Raton, Florida. And we come to you from Boca Raton, Florida. We actually were sick of not seeing each other, so we decided to break into a temple and record from there, and then we're going to drive back to our various homes. So uh, we're doing that. We're breaking into assorted synagogues across the country to use them as our studios. No one else is using them. So we might as well. Shalom, friends. <laughs>